listening to In Tune, a podcast series featuring equity research analysts from BMO Capital Markets. Our shows explore key emerging themes, trends, and issues which are important to our institutional clients globally. Today, we're doing a deep dive into the outlook for electric vehicles, or EVs, based on our recent report titled, Raise EV Targets Higher and Update Key Assumptions to Varying Upstream Effects. I'm Camilla Sutton, MD in Equity Research, and I'm joined today by three of our analysts and authors of the report, Robin Fiedler, Joel Jackson, and Colin Hamilton. I'm really looking forward to this discussion and where this conversation takes us. Robin, let's kick it off with you. BMO just updated its electric vehicle forecast. Can you take a bit of time and walk us through the major changes? Sure, Camilla. So we raised our EV sales forecast across the decade. We added about 1 to 2 million of incremental sales per year over the near term and about 4 to 5 million per year later this decade. The impetus for our higher forecasts is largely from stronger than expected sales out of China with likely continued momentum there going forward. Uh, We also see supportive policy in the U.S., which is sharp to benefit the market, but the positive policy impacts may take some time. So we only really increased EV sales in the U.S. in particular for the back half of this decade. So overall, we now see global EV sales growing to 35 million by 2030 versus our expectation of 30 million previously. And we see that scaling up from our expectation for just over 10 million of EV sales this year. And on the battery side, we made several changes to key underlying assumptions that impact upstream raw material demand. One key change was to our cathode technology assumptions, where we assume a higher mix of lithium iron phosphate cathodes, which don't require nickel or cobalt at all, and use a little bit less lithium as well. But the biggest sweeping change we made this time was we actually lowered our battery metal intensity estimates within different battery types. We believe the work that we've done on this is quite differentiated. It's backed by model teardowns and has been corroborated by various industry experts and notable companies within the supply chain itself. So on balance, while our higher expected EV sales forecast benefits all metals, certain metals, the boost is more than offset by the underlying battery-related assumptions that we've made. So there are actually some net winners and net losers on the metal sides after our changes. Joel, can you elaborate on your updated views on lithium? Great. So yes, we did make a lot of changes to our lithium supply and demand model. So of course, when we raise our EV penetration rates, EV sales, like Robin said, across a decade, that does increase lithium demand. But we also have a partial offset in that we have lowered the lithium intensity per kilowatt hour, and we've added more supply projects. And so our lithium demand goes up a little bit, so is our supply for the rest of the decade. But our conclusion is the same, that we see lithium extremely tight into 2024. That should let prices stay very strong. You might see a bit of weakness in prices as we get to 2024, but nothing massive. And then we see oversupplied into 2029. And there is a risk, of course, that a lot of these junior projects and new projects that come on really have some issues, some teething issues where supply doesn't come on like thought and we could stay snug for quite some time. But yes, we do see the market getting a little more of a supply in 2024 and some price weakness then. Let me go a little bit more on the lithium intensity. What we've done is we now model, you know, LCE content per kilowatt hour of about 0.8 kilograms per kilowatt hour, dropping down about 0.7 by 2030. We previously were modding 0.8 in 2030. This is the first time we've really broken out theoretical lithium intensity by cathode type versus actual real world 
usage and intensity. We previously used catch-all intensity numbers, but now we're really delineating theoretical lithium intensity, but flexing for real-world supply challenges and, and, and other things that happen for in a battery on initial charge and discharge. And we really did talk to a lot of industry experts here, Robin, myself, and Colin. We talked to cathode makers, we talked to lithium producers. So, you know, net-net, lithium's going to stay snug for a little while at least. We are bullish this space. But we could see oversupply in 2024. But again, heavy lifting is needed by junior companies and new projects. Interesting, Joel. So Colin, I'm curious to hear what these changes mean for your outlook on nickel, cobalt, copper, aluminum. Did I miss any in there? Really just looking for essentially the major metals impacted by electric vehicles. Yes, thanks, Camilla. Well, let's start with nickel. That's really the one under my coverage. It gets a a lot of attention. It's one where a lot of the big producers are are really focusing their time. While we've upped our penetration rate, we have changed the cathode chemistry. And uh, we've actually upped the amount of lithium iron phosphate, which is, of course, cobalt and nickel free. And with that, that's taken down the average nickel and cobalt intensity per cathode or per kilowatt hour uh, relative to what we had previously modelled. With that, our 2030 nickel demand from electric vehicles, including things like e-bikes, is now just short of 1.2 million tonnes. Previously, it was near 1.4 million tonnes. So a slight downgrade there, but in the context of the overall market, not a huge change. And we're still looking at roughly a 20% CAGR growth in that area over the medium term. Nickel is one where we will have to start incentivizing new projects over the next five years. In terms of cobalt, well, batteries are already moving to be uh, less cobalt intensive. There's obviously a, a major security of supply risk there to a certain extent, given we get so much from one country, the Democratic Republic of Congo. And while there's uh, efforts being made to almost embrace artisanal mining in that country, still it's the sort of thing that OEMs get a little bit nervous around. In terms of cobalt, we're now looking for about um, 143,000 tonnes by 2030. Uh, That's up from about 53,000 tonnes at the current time. So slightly lower again, uh, similar to nickel than our previous forecast, but we're looking at about a 12% CAGR in that market. Now, in terms of copper, of course, copper is that obvious clear story around the energy transition from a metals point of view, very well established. We know where copper goes. And with upping our EV sales, well, we're now looking at about 3 million tonnes of additional copper demand by 2030. That's up about 2.6 million tonnes previously. In terms of copper, I would highlight this is a market where we're looking at being supply constrained in the medium term. Quite frankly, I just cannot incentivize enough supply to balance the books, so substitution, thrifting are a necessary evil. And just to spend 30 seconds on something that I think is actually underappreciated in the wider EV transition, and it's uh, aluminium. Aluminium, very important for battery casing and, of course, into vehicle bodies itself. We're looking at about 12.1 million tonnes now of aluminium used in electric vehicles by 2030. Now, that will represent, at that point, somewhere towards kind of 15% of the global aluminium market. So it really is one of those ones that it goes a little bit under the radar, but it's definitely a key growth area. So Robin, let's just switch back to you for a second. How does this impact graphite or what should we know about graphite when it comes to EV? Yeah, so Camilla, I think it's interesting because graphite is probably one of the more overlooked Uh, key materials within the battery. So graphite makes up the majority of the anode, and there's actually more graphite in the battery uh, than lithium. But it's an often misunderstood part of the the supply chain and overlooked part of the supply chain, uh, particularly um, from investors, at least in my opinion. 
Our graphite estimates have changed. They've gone up about by 10% over the midterm and up to even as high as 20% by the end of the decade. Graphite demand benefits obviously from the higher EV sales, but because graphite is cathode agnostic, uh, some of our cathode assumptions don't actually impact uh, graphite demand. So on balance, it actually benefits quite a bit relative to our previous assumptions without being as inhibited from some of our metal intensity and, and cathode changes that we've made. Interesting. So Robin, one of the really impressive pieces and new additions to your report is the dashboard. And those dashboards are done by geography. Can you walk us through how electric vehicles markets differ by geography? Yeah, so the EV market is dominated by three key regions, China, Europe, and the United States. So China makes up about 60% of global EV sales right now. And we've seen that market really separate itself recently. We think the reason for that is after many years worth of investment into establishing a self-sufficient and vertically integrated supply chain, that effort is really bearing fruit now as the market scales. We believe the EV production costs are at or near par with gas cars in China, allowing automakers to offer budget-friendly vehicles with ever-improving performance. EV production cost is a key point of differentiation versus Europe and the U.S., where it still costs quite a bit more to make an EV than a gas-powered car. Unless, of course, that vehicle is made by Tesla, who is still driving the majority of U.S. sales because other U.S. OEMs haven't quite scaled up their EV offerings at this stage. But that is starting to change. And then in Europe, the EV market has actually done you know, quite well in recent years. That has mostly been because of aggressive auto emission target reductions, forcing automakers to electrify their fleets. But now the next round of emission reductions in Europe won't come into effect until 2025. So we could actually see Europe slowing down a little bit with EV adoption. So to summarize, China seems off to the races. The US is slowly building after being several years behind. And then in Europe, the market growth might actually slow in the next couple of years until the policy comes back by mid-decade. So Robin, let's push on the U.S. here for a minute. Can you speak to what the potential impacts of the Inflation Reduction Act could be on this market? I think it's really smart policy, actually, and I think it's going to prove effective at increasing EV adoption, but more over the longer term. So what it actually is doing is it's incentivizing the industry to establish more localized and vertically integrated supply chains, effectively to replicate what China has largely already done. Now, it is in part to reduce reliance on China, yes, but also to hopefully bring down production costs. This comes back to the discussion around EV and ICE cost parity being a crucial adoption threshold in our view. So the government is offering generous subsidies to upstream production, cathode and anode production, as well as battery production. The caveat is it has to come from either the US or free trade agreement countries. And most critically, it can no longer come from foreign entities of concern, mainly China and Russia. So the US government is finally stepping up, but it's now time for the industry to respond in kind. And I think it started to already, it will just take some time to then feedback into higher EV sales in that market. Terrific. Thanks for that, Robin. Well, maybe now as we get close to the end of our podcast, I'll ask each of you, what is the single biggest hurdle to mass market EV adoption at this stage? Colin, why don't we start with you? Thanks, Camilla. Interesting question. I would say um, there's a number of things, but the one I'm going to highlight is information. It's still a nascent industry. This is still something that everyone's getting their heads around. But of course, it's, it's very fast growing. 
And I think we have a, a consumer base and, I mean, to a certain extent, still an analyst base, which is trying to understand the intricacies of the process. Now, I would say I'm very proud of the work we've done here in delineating and really getting into the detail, particularly on the demand side, to try and pull through just a lot of granularity to try and have best efforts basis. And that's all we can do at the moment. But when we think about the mass market adoption, I still think your average consumer doesn't quite understand how everything's going to work. This is a difference for them. This is not what they've been used to buying for many years. And you could argue in China, well, why we've seen better penetration there. First, of course, of all, it's, it's been government backed, but also they're trying to build a new market. And it's always easier to get that new marketing information out there. I still think while we're seeing the investments on the manufacturing side, I do think on the information and marketing side, there's still a lot of work to be done by uh, many of the EV players. Joel? Uh, thanks, Camilla. Yeah, I think it's choice. Like where are the, it's from North American angle, I'm going to answer this question. Where is the choice in the dealerships? We need to have the, the models ready. We're a little bit away from that. And then the charging infrastructure. So like Delta what Colin said, you know, how does it all work for a consumer? Where is the cars? Where are the chargers? All right, Robin, why don't you close this out? The single biggest hurdle to mass market EV adoption. Sure, Camilla. So for me, I think, especially in Western markets, it's bringing down EV production costs. I think the next leg of EV adoption will have to come from the middle class who are much more cognizant of sticker prices. And particularly in a recessionary environment, it's likely even more top of mind. I do think consumers should actually think more about cost of ownership over a longer period of time and this is where EVs actually stack up quite well, but at least at this stage, still the EV sticker price is quite a bit higher in Europe and in North America versus an ICE equivalent. I do think the industry is actually well on its way to hopefully reducing those production costs uh, in an effort to reach this critical EV ICE cost parity. I certainly think China has already achieved this and the rest of the world still has some work to do to catch up, but I, I do think we're well on our way. Colin, Joel, Robin, thank you for joining us today. We certainly covered a lot of ground on the outlook for electric vehicles and the associated commodities. That was Colin Hamilton, Joel Jackson, and Robin Fiedler from BMO Capital Markets Equity Research Team. If you're interested in the reports, there are two based on this topic to dig deeper in. One is raise EV targets higher and update key assumptions to varying upstream effect. And the other is changing some EV and lithium assumptions, though conclusions remain the same. BMO Capital Markets is proud to deliver a thoughtful analysis of upcoming equity research trends that will prove important to clients' investment decisions through both this In Tune podcast, as well as our commodity-specific Metal Matters, hosted by Colin Hamilton, who you heard today. If you enjoyed today's In Tune podcast, please do subscribe and rate it. Thanks for listening to In Tune presented by BMO Capital Markets Equity Research. You can subscribe to Intune on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other podcast providers. Or visit our website at researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com to listen to more podcasts. Until next time, thank you for tuning in. To access our full disclosures, please visit researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com slash public dash disclosure.